Well, good morning, church. Good to see everyone here. Good to see some new faces with us this morning. As the kids are making their way to their classes, um, we've got a couple of really exciting um, announcements about the church this morning, and so I'm going to share one of one of them with you before the service, and uh, excuse me, before the sermon, and one of them after the sermon. So here's one. Um, we had a time of nominating uh, new elders and deacons uh, a few months ago, and we have gone through a process of evaluating each of those candidates and meeting with them, interviewing them, talking with them, uh, seeking to discern uh, those whom God has already set aside uh, to serve as elders in leading and feeding the flock, and deacons, those who are here to serve the flock. And so uh, we are delighted to share with you that we have two um, potential elders and two potential deacons that we want to put before you this morning. Um, And the way we do things constitutionally, for those of you who are new with us, um, we put these names before you and ask that you would pray. And uh, if you're a covenant member with us, we would ask that you would, in the next two weeks, give us any feedback that you would have uh, about any of these candidates for the offices in which they've been nominated to serve. If there's any reason whatsoever, based on their life, that uh, you believe there may be question as to their suitability uh, to serve in these roles, we want to hear that as elders, and so we want to ask you during these two weeks to let any of the sitting elders uh, know that and give feedback to them. But we want to put those names before you this morning, and uh, I'm excited to be able to share this with you. I want to ask that you would be praying for these individuals. And uh, guys, as I call your name, I just want you to stand so that those who don't already uh, know your face, they can put a name with a face and be Uh, praying for you over the next couple of weeks. So uh, for Elder, uh, Dan Ross is one of the candidates for new Elder. And uh, the other candidate is John Keese. John is right here. There he is. Um, The two deacon candidates that we have are Jacob Hall. There he is in the back. And Will Rogers, the two deacons standing next to each other, ready to serve, ready to just pitch in and serve. So Um, We'll be uh, voting on these folks in a couple of weeks. Uh, After that, we will schedule an installation service. It's not um, voting on one or the other. Uh, We have open seats for for two deacons and two elders, and so um, it would be a matter of whether or not you believe that these individuals are called to that. So thank you, guys. Y'all can sit down, and thank you for your willingness to serve the body of Christ in that way. So please be praying for them. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 15. We're continuing our study through Paul's great letter to the church in Rome. Last week we started chapter 15, and we covered the first seven verses. And in those seven verses, we unpacked a twofold obligation, a twofold debt that we have to those who might be weaker in the faith in the body of Christ. One is that we should be carrying their weaknesses. That we should carry the load of their weaknesses. And we, we said that that meant that we need to be respecting them and encouraging them in their attempts to honor Christ and worship the Lord by, restrict, by doing things like restricting their diet to not eat meat offered to idols and not drink wine or whatever the case may be in those issues of disputable matters that he's dealt with in chapter 14. 
And that we ought to, even if we don't necessarily agree that, the, that Scripture restricts their diet and puts those restrictions on them, that we ought to be encouraging them in their efforts and their attempts to honor Christ by what they are doing instead of looking down on them. That would simply be pleasing ourselves and elevating ourselves. And so that's the second obligation that we have. It's not to please ourselves, but instead to sacrifice self and pleasing self in order to lift up and encourage others. And then we saw last week that Paul set up Jesus as the example for us, the the, the best example of one who sacrificed pleasing self in order to lift up, and in this case, save the weaker brother who was us. But we closed last week with verse 7, but verse 7 also bridges us into the passage that we're looking at this morning, verses 7 through 13. Verse 7 kind of straddles the fence between the first six verses of chapter 15, which where Paul focused on us needing to sacrifice self in order to lift up and encourage others, and the next six verses that we'll cover this morning, where Paul focuses on Jesus as the central figure in God's plan of redemption, and the one in whom we find hope, no matter what our background is, Jew, Gentile, no matter what our ethnic background is, that Jesus is the one in whom we find hope for this redemption. And so last week it was welcome one another for the glory of God. This week it's welcome one another in the plan and because of the plan, the redemptive plan of God. And verse 7 straddles the fence right in between them. By the way, this section here closes out the theological body of this entire letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. It closes out the entire theological section of this letter. What comes after this in the remainder of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16 really can be termed an epilogue where Paul then talks about his ministry and what his future plans are and he begins greeting and thanking those um, who are in Rome and uh, ends with a benediction. But 7 through 13 of chapter 15 that we're covering this morning mark the end of the theological section. And there were, as we've said, two parts of the theological section. First of all, there was the gospel presentation in chapters 1 through 11. Then there was the gospel application in chapters 12 through what we're covering today, halfway through chapter 15. So let's listen to the Apostle Paul as he closes out not only this discourse that we've been in for the last few weeks about, the, about unity in the body and welcoming one another, whether we're weaker in the faith or stronger in the faith, but as well as he closes out this whole theological part of his letter. So we're going to focus this morning on verses 7 through 13, but by way of context, I want us to begin back in verse 1 of chapter 15 and read all the way through verse 13. Church, this is the word of God. May he bless the reading of his word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. (coughs) Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. We don't want to take for granted this book that we hold in our hands that you divinely inspired, breathed out through your Holy Spirit, through human authors, that you preserved it throughout the ages so that we know that what we hold in our hands is your very breath, your word to us, to show us who you are, to show us who we are, to show us this glorious plan of redemption in the gospel, and to show us who we are to be as the body of Christ, the church. Lord, as your servant, the Apostle Paul, exhorts the church in Rome to preserve and seek unity in the body of Christ, may may we too be exhorted and may we have the kind of unity and harmony in the body of Christ that would rightly reflect your glory to a lost world. Do in us, Lord, whatever you have to do to make that happen so that you might be honored and glorified through us. We pray this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, let me kind of give you the road map of where we're going to be in verses 7 through 13. There's a four-point outline. First of all, in verse 7, we see the exhortation from the Apostle Paul. And then in verses 8 and 9, we see the explanation of that. And the the bulk of this passage, verses... uh, 9b through 12, we see the scriptural illustration of that exhortation. And then finally, we see him close with an intercession as he prays and asks the Lord to bring unity in the body. So let's start with the exhortation in verse 7. Verse 7 says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Again, this is just a, a, it's a bridge between the first six verses and these next six verses. And as we mentioned at the end of last week's sermon, this welcome here, welcome one another, is the same word that Paul used at the very outset of this whole discourse about unity in the body and how we're to handle uh, disagreements about disputable matters between brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. In verse 1 of chapter 14, as he began that discourse, he said that those who are stronger in the faith are to welcome the weak. 
And then two verses later in verse 3, he was addressing the weak, those who are weaker in the faith, whose consciences were bound by something other than Scripture, that they're not to look down on the stronger brother or sister whose conscience was not bound in that way, who, who felt the freedom in Christ to eat the meat offered to idols or drink wine or whatever, to not look down on them. Why? Because God had welcomed them. It's the same word that Paul uses here in verse 7 of chapter 15. But this time he's using it without any reference to the stronger or the weaker in the faith. Now it's simply welcome one another. Some English translations use the word accept, accept one another. Other translations use the word to receive one another. The, the Greek word here literally means to, to take to oneself and make them as if they are a part of you. That's what the idea behind this word is. In fact, the only other time that Paul uses this, besides here in, in Romans 14 and 15, is in his little letter to Philemon as he's exhorting Philemon to take Onesimus back. He says in Philemon 1 verse 17, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you receive me. In other words, he's appealing to Philemon that, listen, if I'm your partner at all, just as you would receive me back to, my, back to yourself, just as you would accept me and take me to yourself to be a part of you, so I want you to, I'm appealing to you to take Onesimus back to yourself and make him as if he's a part of you. So as Paul uses that word here in verse 7, he's urging the believers in Rome to receive one another in this way, to accept one another. Though they may disagree on some of these disputable matters that, that Scripture doesn't clearly delineate one way or the other, He's exhorting them, accept one another, receive one another, take one another to yourself as fellow members, as brothers and sisters in one family. This has been something that Paul has been harping on for a chapter and a half. Apparently, it was a significant problem in the church in Rome. And apparently, the Lord saw this as a potential problem for the church today because it is preserved for us in the scriptures. He's preserved this exhaustive exhortation all the way through chap from chapter 14 through the middle of chapter 15. These exhortations regarding these kinds of disputable matters. He's been addressing this over and over and over again. Not letting these disputable matters, things like eating meat or drinking wine or whatever the case might be, be sources of division and disunity in the body. And I think it's been preserved for us in the canon of Scripture, partly because this is a potential for the body of Christ today as well, not just then. We too can fall victim to disunity and division. And that doesn't honor Christ. And it doesn't display the kind of love for one another that is to characterize believers in Christ. In this whole section between chapter 14 and 15, Paul has been addressing their proclivity to do things like judge one another and assign motives to one another and assume the worst about one another and look down on one another because of what they believe about these sorts of disputable matters. And church, I hope that as we've been listening to the Apostle Paul 
exhort the Roman believers. I hope that we have not, not just listened to that with, with an eye towards pointing our fingers at the Roman Christians to see how messed up they are, but instead that we would look inwardly at ourselves to see how this proclivity of theirs is ours as well. We are very capable of judging one another on matters that the Bible simply does not settle one way or the other. We are just as capable as the Roman believers of assuming the worst about one another and assigning motives to one another based on what we observe in someone's life rather than seeking to truly know them. Paul has addressed this negatively throughout this whole section by saying, in essence, don't do that. But now he addresses it one more time, this time positively, by saying, welcome one another. Accept one another. Take one another to yourself as if they are part of you because they are. And and what we ought to note here is that this is a command. This is the last imperative verb form of this theological section. This is the, the, the last time the Lord commands us to do something in this letter through the Apostle Paul, except for some closing imperatives that he includes specifically for the church in Rome. Greet, greet this person, greet this person. But this is the last formal imperative verb form in this letter that's addressed to us as well. And it's to welcome one another, to take one another to ourselves as part of us. And so that brother or that sister that you might be judging. And again, as we've said before, we're talking here about judging with respect to these disputable matters, these secondary matters, not biblical imperatives. But instead, judging one another based on a standard that's really more like cultural norms than biblical imperatives. So that person in the body whom you are, might be judging along those lines, Paul wants you to remember that they are part of you. They're part of you. Take them to yourself. Receive them unto yourself as your brother, as your sister, as your family. So as to guard unity in the body of Christ, preserve that unity that, that apparently is so important to the Apostle Paul here. And just as he did at the beginning of chapter 14, and just as he did in the opening verses of chapter, 13, uh, chapter 15 last week, he tells us that the ground of our welcoming one another is that Christ has welcomed us. That's the ground of us welcoming one another in the body of Christ, that Christ has welcomed us. He has taken us to himself, to his own as part of his family. Paul says, if you want to know what it is like to welcome one another in the body of Christ, what that ought to look like, what that might require of us in the body, then we need to look no further than the cross. Consider the love. Consider the grace, the selflessness, the humility that it required of Jesus to go to the cross for sinners like us, the the weaker brothers, Consider that. And then Paul would say, go and do likewise in the body of Christ. And why? What is the aim? What is the purpose? What is the the aim of this command to welcome one another and receive one another to ourselves? 
for the glory of God. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Church, when we are divided, it reflects poorly on our Lord. When we're judging one another or assuming the worst about one another or assigning ill motives to one another, God is not honored by that. And in fact, that just gives a watching world more reason to reject him. Because if that's what his people look like, then perhaps that reflects on him as well and I want no part of him. But when we're unified, God is glorified. And unity in the body of Christ should be important to us because God's glory is important to us. And when we're judging one another and looking down on one another because someone's weaker in the faith or doesn't agree with this secondary matter on the, the same way we do, and so we're looking down on them in that respect, then we are detracting and distracting, if you will, from the glory of God. We're, we're not making God less glorious. We could never do that. But, but what we're doing instead when we're doing those sorts of things is really we're elevating self. We're glorifying self instead of glorifying God. And so let us seek church to be the kind of church that seeks to build unity in the body of Christ, building up one another, encouraging one another in the faith, so that what Paul said back in verses 5 and 6 from last week in chapter 15 would be true of us, so that we would live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the exhortation from verse seven. It's a command to accept one another. And the ground of that command is because Christ has accepted us by grace through faith. And the aim of that command is the glory of God. So now having given that command, now Paul moves into verses eight and nine to give us further explanation for that command. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. When Paul refers to the circumcised here, he's referring to Israel. He's referring to the Jews, the chosen people of God. And so in verses 8 and 9, he's talking here about both Jew and Gentile, together in the body of Christ, that, that Jesus is their only hope. Jesus is the only hope for both Jew and Gentile. In verse 8, he talks about Jesus serving the circumcised, serving the Jews. How did he do that? By fulfilling the promise to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promise that he served there was that a Jewish Messiah would come. A Jewish Messiah would come from the lineage of King David to sit on King David, David's throne to save his people, to rescue his people. And though he would bring a new covenant in his blood, he would not abolish the old covenant. He would not abolish the law. Instead, he would come to perfectly fulfill it. And because he was the promised Messiah, that meant that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was trustworthy and that he was keeping his promises to his people. But verse 9 says that, that Jesus also came as the hope of the Gentiles as well. And in the next several verses, Paul 
unpacks how that is the case and gives us biblical support for that. But before we move on to those scriptural illustrations, I think we're meant to see here that Jesus Christ was and is the only hope for both Jew and Gentile alike. And that somehow that's connected to this pursuit of unity within the body. So in making his point here about accepting one another for the glory of God and pursuing unity and harmony in the body of Christ in that respect, what does Paul do? He holds up the the redemptive plan of God in the gospel in redeeming and rescuing both Jew and Gentile through the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the disputable matters that we've dealt with in chapters 14 and 15 that apparently existed in the church in Rome were in very large part a result of the fact that there were both Jews and Gentiles in that church. And They both had very different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. We might call that baggage that they brought into the church in Rome. And the the Jewish believers brought in their baggage into that church in Rome. Their baggage about certain feasts and festivals and holy days on the calendar. And they looked at those Gentile believers, they looked down on them because they didn't observe those special days. Likewise, the Gentile believers brought into the church in Rome their baggage of idol worship. And they couldn't understand how these Jewish believers could eat the meat that was offered to idols because to them, there is no God but Yahweh. So what difference did it make? And Paul was exhorting them to stop quarreling about these things and instead to recognize the grace and mercy of God for each of them. That Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, fulfilled both promises. That he fulfilled the promises to the patriarchs and proved himself to be trustworthy to the Israelites and he also fulfilled the promise to Abraham to one day through him bring one who would be a blessing to all nations, to the Gentiles. See, Paul didn't just want the Jews to recognize the grace of God on their behalf. He wanted them to recognize the grace and mercy of God also for the the Gentile believers who were sitting in the pew in front of them. And Paul also wanted the Gentile believers in the church in Rome to recognize not just the grace of God on their behalf as Gentile believers, but also to recognize the grace and mercy of God on behalf of the Jews in the pew behind them. So what's our takeaway from this explanation of the exhortation in verses eight and nine? I believe it is this. In urging that church to preserve the unity and to pursue unity in the body of Christ for the glory of God, that Paul wants us to look at our brother and sister in Christ in the church with whom we might disagree about things like drinking alcohol, going to R-rated movies, dancing, reading Harry Potter, trick-or-treating on Halloween, guys having long hair, girls having tattoos, 
you name it. This list of disputable matters that Paul just touched on in chapters 14 and 15 could be endless for us today, right? But Paul's point here, I believe, in part, is that we ought to look at our brother and sister in Christ with whom we might not agree on these kinds of disputable matters, and behind their action and behind their behavior, in whatever case it might be that we don't share a conviction about, that we ought to see the grace and mercy of God on their behalf. Regardless of where we come down on these sorts of issues, the reality is for both of us that Jesus is our only hope, that we're broken sinners in need of a Savior to rescue us. None of us is holy before God. And so for us to point to one another and say, well, I'm more holy than you because I do this and I don't do that, things that the Bible doesn't necessarily clear up for us in that regard, the reality is we're, we're all just as lost as we can possibly be, and we need a rescuer, and that's what Jesus has done for us. And so it, as we look at our brother and sister, we ought to look behind the action and behavior that we might not agree with, and we ought to see the grace and mercy of God shown to our covenant, our fellow covenant members in the church. And praise God for that. And that is where unity in the body of Christ will be built. And so we accept one another, not only for the glory of God, but in accepting one another, we see a reminder of the redemptive plan of God. And this plan was his all along, and we see evidence that this was his plan all along in this next section as he gives us scriptural illustrations of this explanation. Look at verses 9b through 12. In this passage, Paul gives us four quotations from the Old Testament concerning God's plan to redeem Gentiles into his family so that God might be praised not just by Jews and not just by Gentiles, but by Jews and Gentiles with one voice in the body of Christ. Verse 9b, he says, As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now this is a quote from Either Psalm 18 or 2 Samuel chapter 22. Either way, the speaker here is King David. And the setting of the story is that Israel and King David had just defeated a bunch of Gentiles. And God was now praised among, King David says, I praise you among the defeated Gentiles. So this would have been a reminder To the Gentiles in the Roman church, as they're reading this in Paul's day, this would be a reminder to them that they had been a people far from God. That they had been a people not under the righteous rule of Yahweh, but a people whom God had graciously subdued nonetheless and brought them into submission to him as the only true God, Yahweh. And it should likewise be a reminder to us Gentiles today that God too has subdued us and our flesh and our waywardness. He has subdued that and he has brought us into into submission to him by his sovereign grace and he is praised for that. Paul continues that thought with the second quotation in verse 10 which is from Deuteronomy chapter 32. But But in this Passage out of Deuteronomy 32, 
the Gentile, the subdue, subdued Gentiles who are brought into submission to Yahweh are the ones who are praising God. But not only are they praising God, they are praising God with the Israelites. He says, again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So now we see Paul laying a foundation that it was God's plan all along, not only to be worshipped by Jews and worshipped by Gentiles, but to be worshipped by Jews and Gentiles together with one voice in the body of Christ. The third quote in verse 11 is from Psalm 117. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. Here, the Gentiles are commanded to worship and praise and honor Yahweh. And then the fourth and final quote in verse 12 is from Isaiah chapter 11. It says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse is Jesus, is the one who comes from Jesse, the father of David, and so it's from the lineage of King David. So this is speaking of the promised Jewish Messiah, but this Jewish Messiah wasn't just for the Jews. So the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises, possibly a reference to his resurrection, who arises to rule the Gentiles. And in him will the Gentiles hope. So in calling the Romans to unity in the church, Paul directed their attention to the redemptive plan of God. That it was God's plan to redeem a very diverse people back to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus. So we could say then that Paul was directing their focus here back to the gospel. Don't forget the grace that he has shown you in the gospel, in Christ, in making you his own, in adopting you into his family and turning you from an enemy of God into his own children. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the grace of God in this. And isn't it interesting here that this juxtaposition of the gospel alongside this focus of both Jew and Gentile together, that juxtaposition of those two things is where Paul started this whole theological section in this letter, all the way back to chapter 1. Verse 16, when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. Paul now does the very same thing here as he closes out this theological section. He elevates the redemptive plan of God in the gospel to be the only saving hope of both Jew and Gentile alike. Weaker Brothers and sisters, stronger brothers and sisters, no matter background, no matter ethnicity, no matter the things that divide us, Jesus Christ is our only hope. He reminds us of the gospel in seeking unity in the body of Christ. And so the gospel is our only hope to be saved, and the gospel is our only hope to be unified in the body of Christ. And then Paul closes out both this section as well as this larger theological section in verse 13 with a prayer of intercession. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So Paul prays here for the church in Rome. And, and it's interesting here, he, he's not addressing Jews. 
He's not addressing Gentiles. He's not calling out and addressing specifically the weaker brother or the stronger brother. He is praying for the unified church, the unified body of Christ, that they might be supremely satisfied in Christ. This is a prayer that the body of Christ, the unified body of Christ, might find their supreme satisfaction in Christ alone. That in Christ and that relationship formed through the gospel, that we might find everything that we need to live for him in this life. Joy, peace, faith, and hope. It is a prayer for the unified church to be satisfied in Christ alone for God's glory. And and I want to join you in praying that for your church as well. That the Lord would answer this prayer for us, that our God of hope would fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. Now, before we close, I want to share with you, I told you I had another announcement. This was a little bit more lengthy. But I want to share it with you. We as elders want to share it with you this morning because it ties in well with what we've been learning in this letter. I want us to be reminded here that the church to which Paul wrote this letter, the church that he just finished exhorting to pursue pursue and preserve unity for the glory of God, was a church that was on mission. Now, when I say that they were a church on mission, I don't mean that they had a really great missions ministry. They probably didn't have a missions ministry. What what I mean when I say that they were a church on mission is that it was part of their identity. They saw who they were as a redeemed people of God that God had put on mission. And the mission that they were given is the same mission that we were given, to make disciples of all nations, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so as we close out this theological section, before we dive into and tackle the epilogue, I want us to remember what Paul is doing here. He's he's teaching this church in Rome. He's equipping this church. He's encouraging this church. He's building up this church with an eye towards their mission to make disciples of all nations. This is the same mission that God has given to us as a church today. God is building his kingdom. And and, and his means of doing so is through the church, through us, through the people of God, taking the gospel to those who so desperately need it and making disciples of all nations, all peoples, making disciples who will make disciples reproducing ourselves in others to the glory of God. This Roman church knew that they were called upon to reproduce themselves, individuals, individual believers reproducing themselves in new believers, and churches reproducing themselves in other churches. This is the pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts, and it is the pattern that we have accepted here at New Branch as our calling as well. It's always been our desire. It's always been our vision to be a reproducing church, to be a church that 
is involved in reproducing ourselves just as we as individual Christians are called upon to reproduce ourselves by taking the gospel to the nations. So we've always wanted to be that kind of church that is involved and engaged in planting other churches, other expressions of the bride of Christ. And by the grace of God, he's given us an ability to do that and and be a part of that to a degree. He's allowed us to send a church planter up to Boston, the Sanders family. He's allowed us to send an elder down to downtown Atlanta to help with church planting down there. He's given us the privilege of sending and supporting missionaries to go to places like Africa and Indonesia and Costa Rica and Slovenia to in part, help with planting new expressions of the bride of Christ. But today we are super excited and delighted to share with you that God is leading us to plant a church locally as well. You're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the coming weeks, but we wanted to just share with you this morning what God has been doing and what we believe God has called this church to do. So it's our intent, by the grace of God, to plant a new expression of the Bride of Christ in Flowery Branch, just up the road here. Our primary church planter for that will be Bob Boucher. Um, You know that God has led Bob and Rachel to be a part of us nearly a year ago now. And um, obviously a very gifted and skilled worship leader, but he's also a gifted and skilled pastor and church planter in his past. But we knew from day one that uh, God was calling him to plant a church, just like we did when we brought Kevin Sanders on to lead worship and then to, to lead our student ministry years and years ago, knowing that God was calling him to plant a church. And so we knew that, and we began as elders meeting with Bob and praying with Bob and for Bob over the last several months and praying about this calling of his to plant a church in Flowery Branch. And we're delighted to let you know that God has not just called Bob Boucher to plant a church, Bob and Rachel to plant a church in Flowery Branch. God has called us, New Branch, to plant a church in Flowery Branch. Now, I know that there's going to be lots of questions about this, uh, questions like, why Flowery Branch? Uh, Real quickly, because there's lost people there who need Jesus. Uh, Lots of lost people who need the gospel, and it's part of the ends of the earth, and so we're going to take the gospel there. But why now? And, and what, when is this going to happen? Um, we're not going to necessarily answer that question because here's our experience in church planting and in networking within the pillar network. A lot of what we've learned has taught us that it is a lot more important to do this right than to do this quickly. And so we're not going to be in any rush to do this. In fact, we want this to be at God's pace. And so we've set some benchmarks for ourselves that we want to see these benchmarks met before we even begin to talk about publicly launching any kind of public services. One of those benchmarks is that we want to see at least 30 to 35 adults that are a part of a core team that is going to be a part of planting this church in Flowery Branch. We need that that size in order to keep things going. Now, it's our, it's our prayer, it's our hope that some of those 30 to 35 members of that core team would be sitting in this very room right now. And so we've, we've asked Bob to begin assembling that core team by identifying those who sense a leading from the Lord to go and be a part of the mission of God in Flowery Branch. 
And other benchmarks that, we, that we've set before we even begin to talk about public services is that we need to identify another pastor or elder that would help to shell, shoulder some of the, the burden, some of the job of shepherding the body of Christ there in Flowery Branch. We want this to be a team of church planters, not just Bob. That would, wouldn't be fair for Bob or the church that he plants. So another question you might have is, how are we going to pay for this? How, how, how is this going to be funded? And while the particulars of the answer of that question are completely within the prerogative of God to figure out, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but in the same respect, we want to uh, help shoulder some of this load. Uh, we've tasked Bob with raising the necessary funds to pull this off. Just like any missionary would need to raise support in order to go to the mission field and accomplish the mission on their mission field, Bob and this church planting team will need to raise the necessary funds to make that happen. So we hope and pray and expect that New Branch would be a big part of that support. But at the same time, we certainly don't expect to be the only part of that support. So Bob's going to be doing a lot of networking with other churches, even within the Pillar Network, uh, to assemble that kind of support team to raise the funds needed for this plant. We know that there's lots of questions. Uh, we've got some of the answers. We probably don't have all of the answers, but we want to encourage you to approach any of us, to approach myself, to approach Bob, to approach the elders with any questions that you might have about this. Um, and certainly if you're interested in learning more, if, you're, if you think you might be interested in being a part of that, uh, then certainly speak to us about that. We are going to have some interest and informational meetings coming up in the next several weeks uh, to serve some of that purpose as well. Uh, the first of those that you can mark on your calendar is Sunday, June 23rd. We're going to gather together. Anyone who's interested or has more questions about church planning in Flowery Branch, um, we would encourage you to come to that. We're going to meet after church and just dialogue about some more plans and specifics about that and answer your questions. But what we're asking of you this morning, what we're asking of you today simply is to pray. Pray that God would be pleased to give us the people, the resources, whatever's needed to make this happen for his glory. Pray that God would encourage and protect Bob and Rachel and their girls, Trinity and Bailey that God would protect them and encourage them as they step out in faith. Pray that God would begin raising up core team, team members, both from outside of New Branch, but also we hope and pray many from within New Branch to be a part of this as well. And, and pray that we would all be able to catch this vision of church planting. As, as we've said, church planting is very biblical. It has strong support and the pattern that we see in the book of Acts but it's also very practical and specifically is very practical for us at this time in our church. We've been in this building for just two and a half years. And already, on average, we are at about 85% capacity in this room and 90% capacity or more in the parking lot. And it's, it's at about this time in the life of a church when folks start asking, what's next? What's the next thing? When are we going to build the next building? When are we going to expand? Church growth experts tell us that when you reach 80% capacity, you need to have a plan for what's next. And the plan for us has always been church planting, starting a new expression of the bride, not just seeking to get bigger ourselves, but to start new expressions of the bride 
of Christ, that God would call a portion of us to catch this vision. God would call all of us to catch this vision, but particularly that God would would call some from among us, a portion of, of us, to be a part of this new expression of the bride of Christ. And when God does that, then that naturally makes room for new people to come in here. And it's time. Because at 85 to 90% capacity or more, it's natural for a church to get comfortable, to become satisfied with where we are. And when that happens, we stop feeling the need to be outward focused. We stop feeling the need to share the gospel with lost people because after all, we're full. Where are they gonna go? And church, may that never be the case here. We don't want that ever to be the case here. We've got to make room for new people. Convictionally, we don't want to go to multiple services, or at least not long term. That divides the body of Christ. Convictionally, we, we don't want to just send all of the children out of here for the entire time because we, convictionally we believe that they need to see mom and dad. They need to see adult believers worshiping Jesus together. And we're certainly not going to build a new building anytime soon. And so we will start churches We will plant a new church, and then we'll have plenty of room to grow in both places. And so I just want to ask you to join me in praying, to join the elders in praying. Ask your questions, certainly get clarification on questions with the elders. We want you to do that. Come to the meetings. Come to us individually, however. But for this morning, we just want you to pray. Begin to pray for wisdom for courage to step out in faith, for unity, for provision, and for God to be glorified by New Branch as we continue by his grace to make disciples for his glory. Let's pray.